Welcome to episode 17 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. The emotions are all still there, but they don't know how to express them. And the irony of that is that they come out sideways. So they might become very irritable or very controlling or very reactive. And so it's not like it's not there. It's just the pressure cookers on harder. I'm Rowan, and we are back from our pause over Christmas and New Year's, and we're really excited to launch 2021 with our conversation with Dr. Melissa Hart from Heartfelt Psychology. This conversation builds on that of the previous discussion that we had with Tara Hicks in the last episode about emotion-focused therapy, so if you haven't listened to that episode yet, we'd suggest that you start from there. This podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, which is an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. By the way, if you'd like to ask Dr. Hart a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. Okay, let's dive in. My name is Melissa Hart. I'm a counselling and clinical psychologist. Uh, I came into psychology, oh, let me think, it was in the early 2000s. And I am someone who didn't really know what they wanted to do when they grow up. I was 40 when I started doing psychology. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, in my younger years, I had plans to be a doctor or a teacher or something, but none of those things sort of hit fruition. And then I sort of ended up having, um, you know, getting married and having children and sort of did all sorts of other sorts of jobs. I did a degree in medical laboratory science back in the 80s, in the early 80s. But I actually didn't really like that work very much. It was in pathology. So I was involved in the pathology side of uh, health and healing. And I thought, no, I'm on the wrong end of all of this. So it took me many years of all sorts of different explorations and ideas about what I would like to do. And I realized that I wanted to be in the helping profession, but I wanted to be in a part of that profession, which enabled me to um, help prevent disease, not be at the other end of disease, if you know what I mean. So that was where I went to psychology because I felt that if you had a psychological health, you probably would also be physically healthy as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so, I mean, you're you're a bit of a rock star in the world of psychology. <laughs> Do you reckon? <laughs> well, everyone I've spoken to who work in the profession know you, and they certainly know what you're, you know, famous for, which is EFT. So, um, yes. why don't you tell us what EFT is? Well, emotion-focused therapy is a model which focuses on emotion, which is very exciting to me. Um, when I was younger, I was always too sensitive or too emotional or too something. And, you know, this idea that cognition should override everything, that somehow you should be rational and reasonable. You know, sometimes people are just not rational and not reasonable, you know, coming from more of an emotional perspective. So when I came across EFT at uni, it was completely opposite to what the prevailing sort of um, theories were, which is psychodynamic and cognitive behavioural. And I think, you know, our cognition is important, but it's not all who we are. We're a whole lot more than that, if that makes sense. And so I really like the idea that EFT focused on emotion. So the thing that I found was fascinating was it not only included our emotions, but our bodies. It included the idea that we're cognition beings. We also um, are attachment beings. Um, we also go through existential experiences. 
and it sort of was a bit of a melting pot for all of those particular aspects of us being human. So it, it, it favours this idea that we're whole beings, not just thinking beings, if that makes sense. So I like the idea of being considered as a whole being and EFT does that beautifully. So as a modality, we have the working relationship, which is really important. So we need to feel safe. The client needs to feel safe with us. That's number one. Number two, we want to help people get in touch with their emotions, not big cathartic sort of over the top, um, pounding on walls sort of emotion, but those, those subtle prime, what we call basic primary emotions, which help us to connect with that something's not right for us, that something's not going our way. So we try and help people get in touch with those really core parts of ourselves, if that makes sense. So what else is it about? Um, we use tasks, um, different types of interventions, so to speak. And we help that to get people in touch with their emotions because a lot of people have buried them. They're really suppressed. They're really stuck and they don't know how to access them. So EFT helps people get in touch with their emotions as well. It's also really cool because it's a research-based modality, meaning that it's come out of research. It's they looked at a lot of really fabulous types of um, therapists, gestalt therapists, um, person-centered therapists, CBT therapist. Just turning the phone off, and they looked at all the things that good therapists do in therapeutic work, and they recorded. This is Les Greenberg, Robert Elliott, and Laura Rice. These are the guys that developed EFT in the first place, and they looked at things that they thought worked really well for people. And they then put all this research together and they found there were these sort of events, these things that people were doing where the client would say something, then their therapist would respond in a different way. The client would then go deeper into their experience. And then there seemed to be some outcome because there had been some sort of sense of, oh, this therapist can hear me, see me, understand me, has facilitated something. And these aha moments, come to fruition I'm a bit of an aha junkie because I think that's one of the ways that really helps people make change when they can put all those pieces together of their experience in such a way that it makes sense to them and then they start to feel a whole lot more whole and more integrated yeah help me get an aha moment can you maybe use like <laughs> a uh, an example or a case study take us through what a session with someone might look like who is going through an EFT treatment. Okay, so say there's a young woman who's got perfectionism issues, for example, and she's trying to understand cognitively why she works so hard to become a perfectionist. The perfectionism actually um, sort of causes problems with procrastination and sense of failure, sort of trying not to attempt anything or put herself out there in case she's seen as somehow faulty or flawed. So with EFT, what I would be inviting her to do is let's see if we can explore this. So instead of trying to change her thinking and give her alternative thinking ways around this and saying, oh, well, here's some disconfirming evidence or, you know, you're actually very clever at what you do, um, you often get good marks. What I would be doing is asking her what ha happens inside of you when you think about how this idea of being perfect impacts you. Sometimes perfectionists sort of like bully themselves into trying to 
do really well, but often that doesn't get them very far. The feeling inside is a bit like a feeling of shame or a feeling of unworthiness or not good enough and that all their attempts to try and become better just keep getting thwarted all the time. In that exploration, I'd be inviting her to just notice where that might be in her body and she might sort of describe perhaps somewhere in her gut, often fear is part of the problem here. And I would invite her to see, to go back in time, to see whether there's been times in her past where she's had this sensation of feeling a failure or not good enough. And so, for example, she might go back to a memory of when her father was pressurising her into, you know, trying to do better. She might be four and her father's telling her, you know, you've got to write your numbers right or you've got to do your letters properly and if you don't do them properly you're no good and so these thoughts stay with this person over their lives and they just keep feeling they can never get it right where a, a parent that is more encouraging and saying hey you know it's okay not to get this right the first time it's okay not to sort of um, understand you don't know how to do this yet but if you've got a very domineering parent we've got we call that a critical voice that gets internalized into the person and so then they, their own words start going around in their own heads. It's the parental words, but it's become their own voice, if that makes sense. So what I'd be doing is helping to identify, oh, this, this critical voice belongs with your dad. So we would do some conversations um, with dad about, you know, imaginal ones, about how this has impacted her and why this is sort of causing her so much grief. Because really... She asks, needs to ask what her needs are. What were the unmet needs? So she's still trying to please her dad. She's still trying to do the right thing by dad and go, hey, look at how good I am. Look at how amazing I am, that sort of thing. And one of those aha moments is when she starts to recognise, oh, this is not my own voice. This is the voice of my dad, maybe teachers, maybe society, maybe my workplace. And she starts to put the pieces together from that little four-year-old into the, you know, the circuitry in her brain about, oh, maybe I'm not so bad after all. Maybe I was just a little kid and I wasn't meant to know. And those aha moments are pretty special when clients have that sort of understanding. It's like joining the dots, makes, makes sense of their lives and their problems. You talked about two things, that diff different people don't necessarily know the emotions that they're experiencing and then you talked about identifying those emotions can you go into that a little bit more yes so there are seven primary emotions there's sadness joy anger fear disgust a thing called interest or curiosity and shame and these are what we call basic primary emotions these emotions are you see them in the animal kingdom, you know, a dog that sort of shies away um, is feeling shame, you know, a happy dog has got a waggy tail and humans are like that too. But a lot of people have been so disconnected from, you know, understanding what these primary emotions do for them, either because their parents have said, oh, you know, don't be so emotional, like my parents said to me. So you sort of shut them down. Um, don't be a wuss, don't cry. Um, and that leads people into what we call over-regulating, meaning that they can't access, they've suppressed their emotions, they can't get in touch with them. Or you have other people who were a bit like me, which were quite 
over-emotional and found it difficult to contain. But then you lived with this tension of not being able to regulate your emotions properly. And that was also very frustrating. And trauma can interfere with how we manage our emotions too. So if you've got a traumatised child whose parents are fighting all the time, they're going to be sort of withdrawing and shutting down because it's not safe for them to come out and say, hey, mummy and daddy, I'm frightened or I'm angry. They'll be shut down too. So there's a number of different things that happen to us as children that make us feel like our emotions are not okay. And our society at the moment is, is very big on that. You know, think of Facebook, think of Instagram. It's all about the happy face, what's going on in front of the camera. But behind the camera, you know, there's a depressed or an anxious young person who's feeling really isolated and disconnected. So it's like we're not quite authentic beings. We've lost that capacity to really connect with ourselves and others because that's what emotions are for. You know, they're important for our survival. They're important for us to make connections and have relationships. Without them, we don't function very well. They're sort of part, like something's missing if we don't have access to them. Yeah, and, and look, with all the normal caveats that you should put on a, a sentence like this, um, I think as a man, I find it, at least my experience, man, yes. and, and stereotypically as men, it's harder for us to identify and connect with emotionality as well. I know um, yeah. after, you know, Sarah and I started dating, my wife and I started dating, she helped me start to articulate what the emotions were that I was experiencing. And it was like in hindsight now, it's crazy because you, you look back at it and you're like, well, of course you were. Um, ashamed in that context why couldn't you just realize that but at the time you don't realize it you just you're not well what's wrong I don't know but I'm not well and it takes a lot of practice to identify what things in your body correspond to which emotions so I actually wanted to ask you we had Tara Hicks on and um, she identifies herself as your student she said everything (laughs) she knows about EFT she learned from you and she took us through this great sequence she explained that first in the therapeutic context, you'd ground someone and then you'd create a safe space and then you'd really dig. It sounded almost like some kind of hypnosis. You'd really take them deep into this kind of mental, visceral, um, visual space of trying to identify what may have happened and then try and describe what they physically seen. It can be boxes or bubbles or different things around their bodies constraining them. And when I had a, a chat to Sarah after the conversation with Tara, Sarah said, oh, and when, so Sarah did the training course with you, of course, during her studies of psychology. She said, oh, yeah. when I did this with Melissa the, during the, the training, Melissa even connected that as a therapist, you can look at someone's physical body language while they explain a traumatic event. And depending on where they touch, that can often give you an indication to help them connect which emotion that is. So I wanted to ask you, can you is that right? And can yeah. you expand on that a little bit more what cues do you use the therapist during EFT to identify emotions to help your your clients fill in those gaps yes you did a great job of describing how EFT works I will say it's not hypnosis though um, because a lot of especially clients who've been traumatized they don't want to be hypnotized because it's like they um, are under something that they don't necessarily have control over so we we change the state of what we call experiencing. So instead of it being a cognitive state, it's more of an experiential state. It's like a being in the body, letting the body's wisdom speak and the body's knowledge and memory speaks. So that's really, really, really important. Um, The 
way that the therapist can track what's going on for the client is we might even feel a sense of tightness in our throat, which might be tracked words, um, angry words that the client's not been able to say or express. And that can help us guide the client. So for example, going back to that young girl um, who's got the perfectionism issue with her and her dad being very critical, I might feel that in my throat, but I also might feel something in my solar plexus, which is just under your rib cage there, which is fear. So we deal with the fear. That's what the safe place does. So that then that's not the driving force. And then we help the client then perhaps say, well, speak from those blocked words that are in your throat. So it's a, an attunement that the therapist has with the client. It's like we move into a bubble together. Like we sort of connect in such a way that we become almost um, a, a unit of connection and that can sort of move in and out a little bit so we can sort of I can move in get a connection with what's going on with you and then I can set back out again let you work out what's happening for you so there's this movement of attunement moving in and out and connecting with the client in such a way that my presence facilitates them getting in touch with some of that suppressed and um, those emotions that are unavailable to them or had been until this time. And people often surprised, they go, wow, this is so strong. I didn't realise there was so much anger or hurt or pain or fear sitting here. I'd just been getting on with my life and here am I, you know, really connecting with this pain, this hurt. It's really nice when people can really start to, yeah, yes, get in touch with themselves around these emotions and the things they have been sort of suppressing for so long. In that context where you're working with them to try and unravel this, this space that they're in, are you physically feeling some of the emotions that they may be going through, through all the subconscious cues, your body's picking that up and you can feel that as a therapist? Yes, so sometimes... Wow. Um, you know, even like the sadness that tends to sit in the heart space, I can often feel the sadness and really connect with that sadness. And if the client doesn't have language for that, I might even reflect, oh, I'm just really feeling sad right now. And I'm just wondering whether that's um, coming from you. So the therapist has to sort of know their background noise, so to speak. We have to be clear about what's not mine and what is mine. And if we've had experiences ourselves that have created sadness, I might be triggered by the sadness of the other, but I'm not sort of overwhelmed by it. I can sort of maintain my own um, distance, if you like. But yes, I can absolutely feel the, the emotions of the other. Now, of course, you know, a lot of therapists, if you're feeling every single thing that a client feels, that can really burn you out. So we have to be mindful of how we connect into the client and how we can give space to that's what I mean about that moving in and out and, and being able to be aware of what's mine and what's not but it's it's a very intimate sort of space with a client to be able to do that it sounds extremely mm. intimate and what are mm. the issues that people come see you for what is EFT specialized to deal with in your experience so it does very well with things like depression you know, people's self-worth, you know, when you don't really have, you know, a great deal of self-worth, self-confidence, anxiety, very good with anxiety. I work with a lot of clients with trauma, with post-traumatic stress disorder, and that leads on to some people who've got borderline personality disorder. They actually go quite hand in hand. Um, 
what else is it good for? Uh, existential issues like grief and loss, um, pain, you know, emotional pain that doesn't make any sense to people. Um, emotional neglect is also another area that is often misunderstood. Some of the personality disorders, the sort of more narcissistic type personality, and we're starting to get some better ways of working through that as well. We try not to pathologize. We try not to use that language. Um, but when we talk amongst ourselves, it's quite, easy, you know, it's much easier to say, oh, this person's showing borderline traits or narcissistic traits or things like that. But yes, we cover most of the things. Uh, even I've got a few clients, even with um, bipolar disorder, um, schizophrenia is a little more challenging if the client is not stable, if they're very stable, because um, a lot of these conditions, even bipolar, are trauma-related. They're sort of manifestations and even narcissism, borderline, trauma-related. So it's quite exciting to know that we can actually work at that, that sort of trauma level to give people relief of their symptoms and to help them connect with more of a real way of being in the world. Yeah. The the subtext to the book that you wrote uh, is yes. so it's, it's processing emotional pain using EFT, and it's a guide to yes. safely working with and resolving emotional injuries and trauma. So you mean yeah, this one? <laughs> you've got the Banksy. That's a Banksy on the front, isn't it? The girl with a balloon. Banksy on the front. And what I love is this actually reminds me of myself as a little girl aiming for the stars, sort of suspect. You know, I had a trauma background myself, and there's something really nice about being able to get something that represents where I used to be, but now I'm no longer. And uh, I, I, I love that that um, that cover. It was very special. The author, uh, the publisher found it and I said, can we use that? And he goes, yeah, because it's street art. It wasn't, and of course, you, you know, the Banksy shredded it anyway. So um, it's Is that the one that he shredded at the gallery? The that, yeah, yeah. That's right. It just had yeah. an automatic timer and... At the auction, it started yeah. destroying itself. And it got stuck. It was meant to go all the way through, but it didn't. It got stuck. And the woman who bought it still bought it, even with it half shredded. So it was pretty amazing. I mean, it's even more notorious now. That's brilliant. Only Banksy would do that. Yes, it's on that ship recently too, isn't it? There's been a ship um, around somewhere where it's on there too. I think it's something to do, not Greenpeace, but it's along those lines and it's got his painting on there as well. Yeah, right. So actually yeah. you mentioned your own experience with trauma. Would you mind going into that a little bit and maybe talking about what you learned from that? Yes. Um, I'm adopted and I was put in a family that should never have had children. Um, my adopted father died when I was eight years old and my mother should never, as I said, had children. So I suffered quite a lot of emotional neglect. Um, my mother was quite um, abusive. Um, I experienced other sorts of traumas as well. And But I think what that did is it drove me to try and understand what really works to help people with trauma. And what was a long journey and I never really found a particular modality that helped me. But what I was able to do was piece together the bits that I felt were helpful. And that was sort of like the underpinning of my trauma model that I developed, which is the extended focusing task that I use um, a lot and the one that Tara was talking about and we just referred to before. I think that those elements of creating safety for the client, you can't do any therapeutic work until the client feels safe. And that could be the majority of the work for some clients. 
they don't even just turning up to a therapy session can be traumatizing and anxiety provoking and they may not feel comfortable enough to do the work so safety relationship having sort of techniques or tasks or um, interventions that are as natural as possible. This is why I love EFT because it's built from an evolutionary perspective. It makes intuitive sense. Oh, if I got a trauma experience when I was five, well, surely maybe there's something that didn't get sorted out when I was five. So I need to find a way to safely go back to when I'm five, but doing it in a traveling with, with the therapist so it's safe to go back there and it doesn't re-traumatise. And so it's almost like, how can we make this journey for the client as safe as possible so that they can look at the terrible things that might have happened to them and then go through a process. So we often use the adult self coming in with, for the child self as a way of anchoring because the client child did not get their needs met when they were young. And this is a way of getting the adult and the child together because often there's I, I say it's like collecting all the little children that have been lost and stuck so we're going back and we're picking them all up and then we take them all to the safe place and we into they become integrated into the adult and the adult person then starts talking about feeling oh I feel more whole I feel more grounded I feel like I'm more connected to myself because we've collected all these bits that have all been separated out. And that's a survival strategy. That's what people need to do. Like it's actually the right thing to do for when happens in trauma. But for an adult trying to function with parts of themselves not fully integrating, it, it's not very adaptive and it's not very helpful because they might find they overreact to situations or they get very depressed or you know, various other things might happen to them. So, so I don't think I understand completely what, what you're referring to there in terms of integration. So mm -hmm. what does it mean for someone to integrate or what does it mean when someone's not integrated? Okay, so it means that they might have material that's not been resolved properly. So normally people, when they have a traumatic experience, they might get the appropriate sort of love and attention and support that they need at the time when they've had their traumatic experience. So it doesn't, it, it gets integrated. So you have a traumatic experience, you might recall it, but it doesn't feel awful to remember it. You, it feels like, yes, that happened to me. Like I was in a car accident, for example, and, but I had people do all the right things for me and I feel okay. If you imagine a child in a family where there's trauma actually happening in the family by the parents, um, they become the perpetrators, but they're the same people that are meant to be looking after you, keep you safe and make you feel okay. Then you've got this split. You've got this split between, I need you, mum, I need you, dad, but I can't trust you because, you know, you're yelling and screaming and abusing me. So clients then end up not being able to trust others. They feel very wary. They become what we call hypervigilant. They can't remember parts of their childhood and they have other sorts of symptoms like depression and anxiety um, as a way of coping with the fact that they're, they've got parts of their lives that they haven't been able to integrate. Does that make sense? So that end result is someone who, to use your previous example, will lash out at something that may not be a reasonable response because it's linked to and associated with past events and trauma. Correct, exactly. So once they understand that they may have a sensitivity around something 
they might be able to temper their responses a little bit more. Is that the next step then? Is that the conclusion? Well, it's it happens like that. But the thing is, it's like they don't have to, it's not like anger management. It's like, well, let's go back and find where the anger was in the past, get it expressed to the parent then in a memory in the past, in a therapeutic state. And then when you come back to those situations as an adult, you're not as triggered because you've resolved the anger at the cause, at the source. So it likes it's dissipated. It no longer follows you through into your adulthood. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does, I think. Um, it sort of ties into where I wanted to go from here, which is, does it work? Yes. I love and, if, and why does it work? <laughs> and why does it work? And how does it work? Okay. Um, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of clients and I know this stuff works. And I know from my own experience about how uh, clients uh, change, you know, they transform. It actually is a transformational type of um, modality. It even talks about that and it restructures. So it means that you're not stuck with the same old neural pathways that were set down as children. So I see it from a neurological perspective. So when there is fear in your life and when you are traumatized, all those events sort of coalesce together and they've even been able to see these clusters under a scanning microscope, they sort of clump together. And every time there's fear, another symptom or another experience gets lumped together with this, what we call a neural cluster. And these clusters get bigger and bigger over time because the more and more traumatic experiences. And it's very sad that traumatized children often end up um, as adults with further trauma compounding. So for example, they might have been sexually abused as a child, then they might go and get date raped and then they might end up as getting older, being in very violent, abusive relationships. So you can imagine that this trauma just builds up and builds up and builds up, okay? So what we do with the therapy is we go back to those early childhood experiences using imagination and what we call restructuring those old memories by helping them to get in touch with the emotions that were back then that were unable to be expressed to create almost like a new story, not like the thing hasn't happened, but we got the child out of there, we've taken the child to the safe place, we've been able to stand up to the perpetrator. So we've enacted a sort of a corrective experience, if you like. So what happens then is that neural cluster starts to break down as we get these new pathways that are developed in the brain. Because the neurons that fire together, wire together, or the other way around, you know, fire and wire, that's the cluster. And also there's a neurological rule that says neurons that don't fire together, don't wire together. So over time, that cluster will start to break down and healthier neural pathways develop. So you don't have to keep going back into the old patterns of behavior. You're creating new ones. So therefore that anger that would have been there years and years ago for, and then compounded gets resolved. So you don't feel as angry anymore. You can even get to a place where you might even be able to forgive your parents or to, if you can't forgive them, to sort of let go of the impact that their behavior had on you. Because a lot of parents do a lot of their stuff out of ignorance. They, you know, most people are genuinely good people. Um, but there's often a lot of anger and animosity towards them because they didn't get it right. Well, sometimes they didn't know any better. And so it works because of that neural pathways change. 
plus people's emotion regulation improves, they're able to manage their emotion regulation, the grounding and safe place that you talked to with Tara, that is an emotion regulation technique that works beautifully. And I find even if people never do any other therapeutic work, but they manage to do that safe place and that grounding change because they're teaching their nervous system a new way of being rather than being hypervigilant and anxious all the time. You know, it's a bit like meditation. You know, we know that you can teach your nervous system a new way of being. And what I also love about EFT is this is normal, natural things that people would normally do if they didn't have trauma or something else interfering with that. So people, once they learn how to do these techniques, they almost can do it themselves. They might go, oh, I had that really bad reaction to that guy. Um, what was going on? Oh, yes, it reminded me of what dad when dad used to yell at me. What's the feeling that I have? Oh, I felt fear. So they, you calm, they calm themselves down. Okay, that guy, that's not my dad. Let me calm myself down. What did I really want to say to that person? I wanted to be assertive and say they were violating my boundaries about what they said. So it actually moves into their life as a normal, natural part of their life. And they keep reinforcing that way of being. And so the old patterns start to break down. And that's where that may, you know, real change happens. That last example you used is quite a sophisticated emotional intelligence sort of paradigm or place to end up with. Yes. And it takes a lot for someone to be able to leave conflicts or leave confrontational environments and be able to sit back and analyze it and break down the different emotions they had and connect that with previous experiences and yes. understand how those experiences weighed in to have them react in a certain way. That's complex stuff. And it's amazing to hear that what you're saying is you can basically learn that at any point in your life. Yes. And emotional intelligence, we're just realizing more and more is linked so tightly with the happiness that you experience in life, your success at the workplace, right? So, I mean, this is this is really cool. It's great to, to understand that you can learn these things so successfully at a later point in your life. Yeah, and it's, it's a bit of a journey as you go through your past experiences and put it all in a context of, you know, what has happened to me? Why am I like that? That's one of the questions that I always have. Tell me about your symptoms. Tell me about your history. Okay, so in my mind, I'm going, oh, what has happened to this person? And then I start help to unpick, you know, I'm a bit like a detective. I start to unpick all the things that have happened, help them process it, help them to find the appropriate emotional response. And then that means that the emotional intelligence just comes naturally. It's not something you have to learn because emotional intelligence is a gift that all of us have as human beings. There are just blocks to it. Um, and so I think it's really nice to put it in the way that you have around the idea of it being something that we can all, um, it's not even learn so much, but all um, it's almost become, it's an emerging understanding of what we already have. So, do, but do you experience a difference in emotionality in people? Do you sometimes just yeah. get people who are just not very emotional people and vice versa? And then how does that all play in? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, because um, we get what we call over-regulated people and under-regulated people. So, as I said before, the under-regulated are the sort of the hotheads and the, the over-regulated are the people that find it very hard to access. Now, what's very beautiful about our over-regulated clients is the emotions are all still there, um, but they don't know how to express them. And the irony of that is that they come out sideways. 
So they might become very irritable or very controlling or very reactive. And so it's not like it's not there. It's just the pressure cookers on harder. So it's like we have to just release the valve a little bit and, and help to encourage them. And it's very stereotypical. Men tend to be a bit more that way. And our society's taught men, you know, real men don't cry. And yet really being able to get in touch with your emotions shows courage and you also know yourself better through your emotions. You know, a lot of people say, I don't know myself. Well, that's the missing piece, in my opinion. You know yourself when you can connect with your emotions and you can work with your emotions because that's who we are. We're emotional beings. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. We are, humans are emotional beings. And depending on how much you express, it doesn't take away the fact that we're fundamentally emotional and we're driven by emotion. Our decision-making, our wants and dreams and hopes and desires are driven by emotion. By our emotions. We can't make decisions without our emotions. You know, the research is showing um, that people who've had tumours in their brain or uh, accidents cannot make decisions if they don't have that emotional part of their brain functioning. What about uh, the, you know, fraction of a 1% of society who are psychopaths? Do <laughs> yes, they just not have any emotionality? Can I, can I ask you that question? Yes, you can because it's been one I've been thinking about for years and I love um, talking about uh, people with sort of really outside sort of personalities. Um, I think psychopaths um, have had so much trauma in their lives. That, remember how I said they split off parts of themselves? It's like the they've got an inheritance, perhaps because there's another member of the family that is um, maybe antisocial um, or psychopathic or sociopathic. They're all words that we use that, to describe similar sort of presentation. Then the trauma that they experience as children is so extreme that in order to survive, they've got to slice off parts of their psychology, part of their humanness. They actually have to find a way to just function in the world in a very limited way as a protection. And I know a lot of, um, I supervise a number of uh, psychologists who work in prisons, for example. And yes, you can tell that there are certain characters that really shut that off, but you wonder, you know, how much is that for show? And how much do they really feel that they're not willing to show? And some psychologists have been able to break through that sort of barrier um, and get to some of that softer material underneath, but it takes a huge amount of trust and patience because they're letting down the very thing that's kept them alive. So there's some really interesting sort of understandings of how this starts to happen, that they lose their empathy and they lose um, their way. And I know I had one supervisee who had a seven-year-old child as a client and she started describing how she felt in the space with him. She did play therapy and she said, I feel really disoriented and dissociated and he seems to get me to be able to do things that I would not normally do. And um, I feel like I'm giving all this empathy to him, but he seems really like he's playing a game with me. He was seven. And I said, that is early psycho psychopathy, early someone who is going to be a psychopath. And I don't know whether that can be reversed or not. I've never worked with someone at that young age, but it was very interesting. And I saw it just like that because of the, the, the way she was disorganised and disoriented in his presence. They're master manipulators. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I like how you've described sort of the, the timeline of someone experiencing, you know, that that extreme of a you know presentation like psychopathy. Because um, you talked about how neural pathways are basically thought pathways through our brains. And, you know, if you keep firing along the same line, if you keep having certain yeah. thought processes, that sort of gets wired into your into your architecture of your brain and and the emotions too it's not just the thoughts it's the emotions that are tied because when people have a very strong emotion about something that imprints it on their mind more than just neutral materials so for example the more trauma you have the more emotional charge there is the more that those neural clusters will develop. So it's not even so much the thinking. This is why a lot of people with post-traumatic stress can't understand what's going on for them. They have all the physiological responses of fear and anger and terror, but they can't make actual sense of it because it's disconnected. Does that make sense to you? So the emotional signal is disconnected with the, the physical I'm in a dangerous space brain signal. Yes, so they just know they're in danger, but they can't make sense of it because it's not actually connected to the here and now. It's connected to the past. So they're like having a physical flashback of an old traumatic experience. No thinking there. It's all emotional. So it's important to recognise that the emotions are the things that often are driving people unconsciously because the cognition's not there. Yeah, and I think that's that's a really interesting thing that EFT strikes to. It goes right to that nucleus of emotionality even deep into the subconscious i I just think that's why it's such an interesting modality or interesting treatment type yeah because we're trying to bypass a lot of the cognitions because they get in the way so we're trying to work with the body work with the emotions that sit deeper um than just the thinking because the thinking can actually fool you interestingly enough where your emotions can't lie you feel fear and you feel fear it can't trick you So your physiological response is accurate. But the thing is, it might be temporarily at the wrong time. For example, if you've got a post-traumatic stress reaction to something from the past and it gets triggered in the here and now, the feeling in the here and now is right as fear, but it's actually connected to a past experience, not a current one. And that's why we have to go back and resolve the old one. So we disconnect the emotion from the memory so that the client then is free to make decisions in the here and now without the overwhelming physiological, emotional baggage that goes with it. The image I had in my mind was it's almost like emotional surgery. You go into this yeah. particular <laughs> emotional spot and you can... So, Melissa, the last question I wanted to ask you was if someone out there is listening and they think, I would really benefit, or I know someone who would really benefit from this style of therapy or treatment, mm-hmm. what do they look for? How do you know that someone is adequately trained as an EFT counsellor or psychologist or psychiatrist? Mm -hmm. How do you know that they're qualified? Um, I don't know that there are any psychiatrists that are trained in EFT. It'd be nice to get a few of them. Um, Psychiatrists tend to produce, um, uh, some of them do psychodynamic um, therapy, but most of them just do medication. So they assess medication and they diagnose and things like that. Um, But we've got lots of lovely um, psychologists and counsellors who are trained. So if you Google emotion-focused therapist, um, we have the Australian Institute for Emotion-Focused Therapy. Um, They have a list of um, internationally accredited uh, emotion-focused therapists. Um, Or you can Google emotion-focused therapy um, therapists and you'll find different people come up. A number of people have done my training um, they're, they're sort of quite diverse around Victoria. There's even a few people interstate. 
so it'd be wonderful if people were willing and they just wanted to check that out. But yeah, just Google, dear old Google, what would we do without Google, hey? <laughs> and of course, they can reach out to you at Heartfelt Psychology, right? Uh, yes, they can reach out to me. Just Google my name is probably the easiest. You'll find me. If they would like to email me directly, my contact details are there on my website, Melissa Hart Psychology. Um, you can find me there and very happy to, um, if I can't help anyone, I can direct to people to other sites and sources. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our main conversation with Melissa. I say main conversation because as we wrapped up this discussion, we went down a rabbit warrant and it was just too insightful not to share. So we've decided to upload it next as a bonus episode. It was a discussion about Dr. Hart's experience with dissociative identity disorder, which is basically a condition where someone's experienced such immense trauma that their mind as a form of protection, maybe we theorize, has fragmented. Uh, leaving them with multiple personalities. In fact, previously the condition used to be called multiple personality disorder. The purpose of this podcast is to have open chats with these professionals and it's not designed to be used as individualized therapy. Please take it as general information only and visit the show notes for personalized support if you need it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and a comment. We read every single comment and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. It's also the best way for us to promote these conversations and make this podcast more discoverable on all the podcatching services. Thanks so much and see you again soon.